summertime in uh, these songs of ascent, songs that God's Old Testament people, Israel, sung on their way up to Jerusalem for their feasts. And we're going to read Psalm 125 in a few seconds. Well, it is um, hard to read a newspaper. It's hard to watch any news program nowadays without seeing some kind of story about uh, declining trust of some form. I even found in a a Guardian survey this week um, entitled, Who Do You Trust? I'm sure they meant whom do you trust. Uh, They say, sorry, they say, There is a cloud of cynicism in the UK. And guess where that cynicism is worst? London. No, it's not. It's Scotland. It's Scotland. It's with us. I can't believe it. I always thought we were really positive people. Well, the Guardian survey was fascinating in many ways. It it shows how lots of people think that lots of other people are basically not trustworthy. (laughs) It, was, it shows that people who think that banks are not trustworthy didn't really need a survey to tell us that. The phone calls trying to sell us PPI uh, every day, that, that tells us about that. Um, it tells us, this survey, that celebrities are not trustworthy. Politicians are not trustworthy. Interestingly, only 18% of people in the UK think they are. It's a sample, of course. It's not a sample. Uh, But the Guardian survey then asked, which of the following people do you trust? Only 30% said they trusted colleagues. That was interesting. 73% said they trusted their spouse or partner. 89% said that they trusted their friends. So people are more likely in Scotland and in the UK to trust their friends than they are their marriage partners. That's a little bit concerning, isn't it? Now, this cynicism has got everyone talking. People began to ask, well... What is it that makes someone trustworthy? What does a person have to to be to gain someone's trust? Well, Forbes magazine pitched in on the whole conversation. They came up with a list of of various characteristics, uh, certain virtues that they think make a person trustworthy. But you could basically narrow it down to two, credibility and reliability. So credibility, a trustworthy person, says Forbes magazine, speaks the truth. It's not just that they don't lie, it's that they're totally transparent. They lay it out on the table for everyone to see and they have no problem with it. They are totally credible. Secondly, they're reliable. A trustworthy person has a track record that proves their faithfulness to their word. That's what makes a person trustworthy. Credibility, reliability. Now, what I want to argue tonight is that as you think through even those two primary virtues, you could have taken any of the seven or eight virtues that Forbes listed, you can see quite clearly from God's word that these primary characteristics define, or not define, but describe who he is. I mean, if you want credibility, Hebrews 6, 18 tells us that it's impossible for God to lie. He's always trustworthy. He's always laying forth the truth for us. And doesn't hold anything back. And if you want reliability, well, 1 Thessalonians 5.24, even when it talks about an area like sanctification, growing to be more like Jesus, 
it says the one who calls you in this regard is faithful and he will do it. Utterly reliable. God is totally trustworthy 100% to the point that those who trust in him, who bank everything on him, will not be disappointed. Should never be disappointed. And will never find him to be unreliable. And now knowing that, and living like you believe it, is what makes faith in God like ours, according to Psalm 125, unshakable. How many of us have had wobbles in our faith? How many of us have experienced some shaky circumstances that have affected us? This Psalm calls for trust. Psalm 125 declares that knowing who God is and what he has promised to do, what he has promised even to produce in us, unshakable faith, is a thing to be pursued and indeed should be the practice of all who believe in him. So let's read it together before we unpack it. Psalm 125, this is what God's word says. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Amen. This is God's word. So if you're taking notes tonight, uh, let me map this out for you. There's two points. Number one, take God at his word. It's verses one to three. And talk to God with your words. Verses four to five. So, number one, take God at his word. What does it mean to trust the Lord? Well, to trust someone is to take a person at their word. It's to believe on account of their character that they will do what they say they will do. Most of us learn this lesson in the school playground, not even in a church, not in a theology classroom or anything like that. We learn it in the school playground. How many of us played the game of do you trust me at school it's gone by various terms it basically involves you standing here with a friend of yours standing in front of you but with their back to you and you say fall back and I'll catch you do you trust me you ever played that game a few of you yeah how many of you have fallen onto your posteriors yes many of us have yes many all of a sudden, we're, trying to, we're starting to recognize the cynicism in the UK is actually rooted in this game in childhood. I've, I've, I've come to a conclusion. Anyway, we say, fall back and I'll catch you. And boom, they recognize their trust was misplaced. Those who went along with the game, who took us at our word, they trusted us enough to catch them. But we proved to be unreliable, untrustworthy. But the Lord's word 
is surer than any child's word. Surer than any grown-up's words, even. Truer than the most honest person that you have ever met. He never, ever lets us down. Never, ever breaks a promise. And when it comes to trusting him fully, everything really comes down to the question, will you take God at his word? And I wonder if you find that a hard thing to do. What's the reason for that shaky faith that we sometimes experience? Well, Maybe, the, maybe we question at times, let's think about different areas where this can be an issue before we get into the text fully. Maybe we question whether or not our sins really have been forgiven. Maybe you doubt that in some form. Maybe you question it. We wonder if we're actually blameless before the righteous judge of all the universe. But God has spoken clearly in his word and declared, I have delivered you from the dominion of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of the son whom I love, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God says, take me at my word. But do we? We wonder if our sins have been forgiven when we confess them, even as Christians. But we read, if you confess your sins, is faithful and just to cleanse us and purify us from all unrighteousness. The question is, will you take God at his word or will you struggle with shame and continuing guilt? Or will you count those sins truly forgiven as God has said? Maybe you experience some struggle with sexual sin and you think to yourself, well, in this whole area of temptation, I don't really have the strength to fight it. It, it all seems just too good for me to give up. But God says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And I'm faithful. I will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, I will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The question is, will you take God at his word? Will you truly believe it and live like you do? Or maybe we're in the, the middle of some kind of painful trial. It can be something like ill health. A diagnosis, uh, childlessness, broken relationships, extinguished hopes. You know, the things that just cause deep heartache. Well, maybe you ask, can God really use this painful situation for my good? Well, God says, I work all things out for the good of those who love me, who are called according to my purpose. The question we face is, do we believe it? Will we take God at his word? Refusing to take God at his word is what will produce in us a shaky faith. But those who trust in God stand firm. Look with me at verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. So this text says those who trust in God endure. Those who trust in God endure. So what the psalmist is doing here is he is drawing on some of the scenery of Jerusalem, even as this song is written. He's effectively sketching the landscape for you. Jerusalem, as many of you would know, it's built on a high mount. It was also known as Mount Zion. And we know mountains are amazing, right? They are. When you look at them, they, you know, there's something majestic and great about mountains. 
And one of the things that you see in the Bible is that they're often described in such a way as a, a, almost like a meeting place with God, but also they, they depict this sense of durability, of durability. Uh, and, and we know this, you know, some volcanic mountains will explode spectacularly, but the mightiest of mountains, they're not leveled. You know, Everest is not going away at any time soon. But they've got, these mountains have got staying power, they're solid. And you can imagine the people of God then singing this song as they approach Jerusalem, you know, their thighs burning with lactic acid, sweat dripping off because they're doing this massive uphill climb up to the city. You know, their kids are trailing 50 meters back. Come on, hurry up. And then they lift their eyes, they see this city of God. And the psalmist says, gives them a song to sing that even as they behold that mountain, you could say that's what people who trust in God are like. Durable, immovable, uh, unshakable. When you take God at his word, you can have an unshakable faith that even if the whole earth trembles, you won't. You won't be leveled. You'll have staying power. Staying power. Now the question is, what kind of things threaten to level us? I wonder if there's anything that you've experienced or, or even you're fearful of experiencing in the future that you think, if that happened to me, I think I might throw in the towel. Or at least I think it would be touch and go. It might be difficult. Maybe you've experienced some kind of difficulty along those lines. Sin and temptation can do it. We've highlighted some of these already a few moments ago. Shame and guilt can do it. Suffering can do it. Maybe a situation doesn't end really how you really wanted it to end and you struggle with that. Well, this psalm reminds us and encourages us to never forget that God has a 100% rating on his promise fulfillments. He's never let anyone down. We can take him at his word and trust him and keep going. We can endure as the mountain does. And of course, this is the picture that's painted for us even in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered intensely, who suffered as he approached the cross, especially where he would take upon the sin of all those who would trust in him. And he would bear it away to a point of pain and suffering, unspeakable suffering. And that's not just talking in the physical sense, the experience of becoming the greatest sinner that ever lived and separation from his father and as the father poured out his wrath and punishment on him in our place. Well, he experienced that. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned its shame, sat down at the right hand of the father, consider him so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. So those who take God at his words endure but also those who trust in God are secure. That's what verse 2 tells us about. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. Well, the psalmist is drawing again on the topography, the landscape of Jerusalem. And this city, of course, as I say, set up on a mountain, but it's not the highest mountain in the range. It's actually surrounded by higher peaks. And we see this, don't we? We sometimes miss this. 
you know, we, we read some stories of Jesus as he looks down upon Jerusalem and weeps. Well, that's because he's descending down one of these higher paths to the city itself. Mount of Olives was a little bit higher, of course. Now, these higher peaks, and if you like, act something like a fence. And when I say fence, don't think white picket. Think high barbed wire and electrified security fence. And uh, if you were there and you looked around, you would see that in terms of location, it's a great spot for a city. It's a great spot for a secure location. You would feel secure there. Now, history has proven that Jerusalem wasn't so secure. It was tough to sack Jerusalem, but various enemies did manage it, like Nebuchadnezzar, for example, and the Babylonians. But remember what's happening here. Remember this that the psalmist here is using poetry to express a view of Jerusalem. He's not actually saying that Jerusalem is unbeatable. He's just describing it in terms of security. He's using the landscape to tell us something more important. That is, as he says, God the Lord surrounds his people. God is the one who protects his people, shields them, shelters them. And that, for all of us, can provide a deep sense of security. So we don't need to be in a particular city to know the security, but you do have to be in Christ. And to be in Christ means that you have put your faith, your belief, your trust in him as the eternal son of God, the only one through whom we can be saved from our sin. And you can trust him when he says that everyone who believes in him will be saved. That when we repent and believe the good news, we find salvation in him. According to the book of Jude, all those who do that are called, loved, and kept. The word kept is a a word that relates to security. Even in 2 Corinthians 4, when the Apostle Paul is talking about the context of suffering and hardships, he would say, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because we are secure in his hands. What difference does a knowledge of this security God surrounding you, if you like, mean for you in your everyday life. Perhaps there's an area of your life where, we, where you feel insecure. Maybe we recall that the enemies that we face really are not physical, but spiritual. Their armaments are sin and temptation. While 2 Thessalonians tells us that the Lord God is faithful... He is one who strengthens us and protects us from the evil one. And of course, it's in Jesus that we have our ultimate protection. It's through faith in him that we have unshakable security. So that even if all hell breaks loose and our life is taken from us, we are either delivered from death or through death into the securest place of all, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells and no unrighteousness dwells. That is the place of forever security, a place that is only entered into by those who have trusted Christ. 
The question is in regards to this security, will we take God at his word? That he not only helps us to endure, but surrounds us and helps us to feel secure in him, secure in his promises of his love, of his care, and of his protection. The third thing this, that we see in verse, these first three verses is that those who trust in the Lord are sure there is a, a certainty about certain things. Verse 3 says, The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. Now remember, this psalm is a song of ascent. Songs sung by God's Old Testament people as they traveled up to Jerusalem for their feasts. Now they had this idealistic view of Jerusalem. They viewed Mount Zion as the place where righteousness dwelled. And sometimes it did, but actually often, even as you read through the Old Testament accounts, it didn't. And maybe, you would, maybe these people would find that as they, they sung their songs, moving up to this holy city, they had great hopes of what it would be like when they arrived there, there, yet when they arrived, they were somewhat disappointed. Though we're unsure of the exact situation that they experience here in Psalm 125, verse 3 seems to suggest that even God's people arrive to find maybe a less than desirable king on the throne. That's what the reference to the scepter of the wicked. There's somebody ruling, but not in righteousness. They're ruling in wickedness. Maybe it's an ungodly king like Jehoiakim was, the kind of guy who would rather burn God's word than read it. Or maybe it's just some some kind of puppet of a foreign king. The interesting thing that you see in Psalm 125, though, is that trust in the Lord does not diminish on account of this reality. The scepter of the wicked, they say, the wicked ruler or government will not remain. There's certainty in those three words. But how can they be sure? Because they trust in God to do something about it. That he will not let the righteous, his people, live in it so long that even they find themselves tempted to do evil. That's the psalmist's concern. It's almost that there's a holy discontent and a, and a holy longing all at the same time. A discontent with where they are and a holy longing for that future change. When God will make it right. But it's only ever going to come about through faith in Jesus, who is the one who brings in the promise of the true home of righteousness, this heavenly Jerusalem, the new heaven and new earth. In 2 Peter 3.13, the apostle Paul, uh, Peter sorry, uh, talks about a day of judgment when the earth is, if you like, refined, purified, purged. Ungodliness is dealt with. Holiness will reign. Holiness will be typical, the experience of all. And Peter says this, that day, that day of judgment, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. Not in a, not in a kind of eradicative sense, but in a, a refining sense. And the elements will melt in the heat, he says, but in keeping with his promise, that's God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Now, the earth originally was made to be this home of the righteous. But mankind sinned. Death entered the world through that. But God didn't just scrunch it up and chuck it in the bin. God didn't forget about the world. He didn't leave it in its sorry state. He sent his son, Jesus, to rescue it, to redeem it 
to undo the effects of that fall, that sin. And one day it will again be the home of righteousness, the place where all who trust in him will live in total security forever. What a home that will be. I don't know what your home was like when you were growing up. I don't know what it's even like now. For some, a home is no doubt a place that conjures up happy memories and warm feelings, but for others, it's a place that conjures bad memories and the kind of feelings you'd rather forget, but not this home, not this home of righteousness. There's nothing evil there, nothing wicked at all, no scepter of the wicked, no arriving there like the psalmist and those singing it on the way up to Jerusalem. No, they, no disappointment like that, just joy, forever joy. It's a place where everything that is good and pure and true lives. And it's a place where we can be. And this is what makes it the true home of righteousness. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Now, what does this mean for you? Well, if you are a righteous one through faith in Christ, if you're living under the rule of wicked people, it may produce in us a certain kind of well, temptation, uh, a tendency to sin. That's exactly our situation, isn't it? Uh, we do not have Christian government and Christian values mapped out and outworked throughout our entire country. That just isn't the case. But we might be tempted in some way as we live as aliens and strangers in this world to well, I suppose you could be tempted to conform, to become materialistic as others are materialistic, to take the values of our city and our culture and, and prefer those to those of God's word so that we become less distinct and, well, blend in a bit more. Or else we might be tempted to, to protest in wicked ways and sin in doing so. But Psalm 125 encourages us to take God at his word and be sure that this is not all there is and one day it will be very different. Very different. And that's what it means to trust God. To take God at his words. That's what helps us to endure. And we can feel secure in him for the Lord himself surrounds us and he will not allow things to remain as they are. He is fixing things and will one day fix it wonderfully. The question is, do we believe it? And do we see in our everyday lives that we are living like we believe it? Those are questions we should all consider. Well, that's the first thing. The second thing we see, of course, is that that trust and the certainty that the psalmist talks about in here doesn't lead to inactivity. It's not a let go and let God mentality. What we see in Psalm 125 is that this confidence that the Lord will not allow the wicked to reign and that his, his, his security will, will, will continue for us, that we will endure as we trust him for this. He says this confidence leads us to pray. That's what we find in verses 4 and 5. Talk to God with your words. We're encouraged, really in verse 4, to pray in the knowledge of God's will. Verse 4 says, do good, O Lord. So this is turned to, not just from singing, 
as they walk up, and it turns to prayer. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. Now, this is the joy of reading your Bible, hearing it preached, and studying it with others. You grow in your understanding of the, the heart and the mind and will of God, and as you grow in these things, you pray. You talk to God in prayer. It is as simple as that. And when we pray using these great and precious promises that he has given us, as we turn the words that we read or we hear preached into prayers, well, we have a blessed relationship with God. And when we pray like that, we can have great confidence, certainty even, that God hears and answers our prayers. So the psalmist here prays, do good. Now, on the one hand, the Lord has already, they've already expressed their certainty that the Lord is going to do good to them. He's already, they've already said with utmost confidence that the scepter of the wicked will not remain. They're certain of that. So, they're pray, so that's the good thing that God will do. The good thing that God will do is that he will remove that scepter of wickedness. And yet they still pray, do good, O Lord. And you see their concern is, of course, for those who are believers. Do good, O Lord. To those who are good, to those who are upright in heart, to those who are pursuing you, who love you, do good. In 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15, we see a similar principle, really. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. It says that if we ask anything in accordance with his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. So there's certainty in our praying, even as we know God's will. And what's more, we're praying for things that we know God wants to give us. But how often do we find that we don't pray these things? We can read something about what God is going to do, and then we just think, okay, that's cool. I can look forward to that. But there is no articulation of that trust in prayer. No requests made, as we are instructed to do. Well, James 4 says that's a problem because it says that you have not because you ask not. But the psalmist here encourages us. He, he prays. He prays and it's an encouragement for us to pray too because prayer is trust expressed. It's trust in God articulated. Prayer is putting your confidence in God, if you like, into words. And we should do that, well, continually. That's what 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us to do. Whether it's a, a prayer time at the, in the morning or in the, at lunchtime on a break or in the evening before you go to sleep or whether it's just the quick fire prayers that you, you offer up throughout the day, one or two sentences here and there. These are expressions of trust based on the promises that God has given us and the truths that God has given us in his word. And the question is, do we find that we pray in those ways? It can be so easy to dismiss it, can't it? Do you not find that? I find that. You don't think it would be so easy just to formalize prayer? It's just something that we say without having much heart behind it. 
But the psalmist encourages us that even though we can have certainty, that actually in this world, God is going to do away with this evil and take us through to the new heaven and new earth. That God is for us and not against us, even as we live in this world. That he is, his face is towards those who love him as we live as aliens and strangers in this world. Well, we should pray in that regard and thank him. And we can ask him, as even as the psalmist does here, to do good to his children. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. Now, when it says those who are good and those who are upright in heart, it's not saying that they're sinless. It's just saying that in God, they find their sins forgiven. In those days, they, they banked on the sacrifices that they made at these, these feasts and their trust in God that the lamb died instead of them, for example. And it's the same with us, with the Lord Jesus. We trust that his death is our death. And any goodness or righteousness in them back then or in us today is, is credited to us as a gift. It's a gift of grace. It's not earned. But the prayer is, do good. Let the ways of your people be honored, even if wickedness rules. Look after us, bless us, keep us, so that even in this life, if we have trouble, we can take heart. Because you have overcome worlds and we see the outworking of that of course in the close of the psalm and what a contrast we have here look with me verse 5 those who turn to crooked ways the Lord will banish with evildoers he's prayed do good to us look after us but even if some give in to this temptation to use their hands to do evil as verse 3 has reminded us of then we're going to trust you to judge them rightly and those who reject you who defy you, who despise your instruction, you will banish. And they will have their place with the ungodly. Well, that might sound hard, but it's true. It's what God himself has declared. Those who prefer sin to holiness, he will banish. Those who prefer their own way to his ways, I will face his judgment. Unless they turn back, Jesus and trust in him. We see this in the New Testament, of course, as well in 1 John 2 verse 19, where it says of those who went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you that Jesus invite, to see that Jesus invites us to turn the other way and to come to him. As 1 Peter 3 says, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against, against those who do evil. You see how transparent he is with us? That's really clear. There is only one way that we can ever possibly be righteous in his sight, and it's by trusting in Jesus, believing in him, having our sins forgiven in his name, and having, would you believe it, his 100% righteous record transferred to our account so that as we appear before God on that judgment day, it is just as if we had never sinned. And my encouragement for you, if you haven't trusted Christ, is to 
trust him, believe him, take him at his word and talk to him in prayer to say sorry for your sin to thank him for Jesus to say please forgive me and let me live for you all of my days until I see you face to face this psalm calls us to peace with God calls us to take him at his word and to talk to him with ours and I wonder if we would all do this let's bow our heads together take a moment in the quietness to respond in your own way uh, to pray maybe it's a prayer of confession maybe it's a prayer of thanksgiving maybe it's a prayer of repentance take a few moments and then we'll stand together and sing